0: What we're going to do now, what we do each Sunday, we'll look at a passage from God's Word, we'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, any way to access the Scriptures, if you would turn with me to our passage today in Matthew 27, Matthew 27, beginning of verse 27, and when you found that, if you would stand together with me for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. Interesting, I was mentioning this morning to uh, our kind of group gathering to lead the service today, how it's something about if you've been in church for any length of time, I think the, the reading about the death of Jesus uh, can sort of become something we're just so familiar with and so used to that it kind of just feels like mm, yes, that that happened and and whatnot we can kind of lose the impact and the, really the horror of it. And so this week kind of employing the discipline of imagination that we talked about in uh, over the summer, I kind of thought of like, what would i feel about this if this was a family member or a close friend happening to how would that affect me and all of a sudden it stirred in me what i think should be a right response to what's happening to jesus here so jesus has been betrayed he's been uh, arrested been on trial before the religious rulers and pontius pilate and now here comes to the climax of jesus passion verse 27 Then the governor, this is Pilate, the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. This is not a solar eclipse, but an expression of God's judgment over the world. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, let which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar. He put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you illumine your word to us today in a new way that maybe we've experienced it in a while? That we would feel the the horror of what you suffered for us as well as welling up within us the gratitude for all you suffered for us it's all those things that we should experience at once and I'm praying that that would be experienced anew in us today I'm praying for each anything that would hinder us this morning from receiving what it is you want to accomplish that you would just remove those things right now in Jesus name accomplish your good purpose In us today, God, whatever that is, and as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, it is uh, the author and theologian N.T. Wright. He tells the story of a friend of his who led a caving expedition a number of years ago uh, with a group of fellow enthusiasts, not himself, but a group of other friends, uh, they'd all trained for this underground exploration through caves and tunnels, and apparently this was a, ra- a well-traveled uh, area for cavers. So there was like it had been mapped out, and there was a clear pathway that they were going to take through that they decided on. However, after some miles underground, they came to a place where this friend believed that there was an as-yet unmapped, uh, undocumented way through the cave that would involve going under the water uh, to get to the other side where they would come up to what he believed was a, a continuing tunnel that went through. I mean, this is the reason I don't do caving. If you want to like combine two of my greatest fears, claustrophobia and fear of drowning in one, let's just package them together. Anyway, um, this is what they decided to do, or at least he had this in mind. But as you can imagine, this kind of suggested detour was not really well received by everyone didn't think it was a super great idea to to do this. Uh, They said, quote, it was a stupid idea. Uh, There was no maps, no charts to indicate that there was a way through. They might go down into the water, they said, and simply drown while trying to find the way forward. Others in the group got angry at him, uh, questioning, like, what right did he have to put everyone in such danger just because he had a dream of finding a new way through this cave? And if you can just imagine yourself in these circumstances for just a moment, this must have been like a a really challenging, hard situation for this friend to be in because no matter how convinced he was that there was a way through here, I mean, was he really going to risk the safety of his entire group just to prove the point? There must have been a really strong temptation in his mind at this point anyways to turn back and, and abandon this new pioneering path. Well, eventually, he says, right, he realized that there was only one thing to do. He would have to go through himself and find the way and then come back and take them with him. Which is what he eventually decided to do. Uh, uh, with some looking on in silent concern as he submerged under the water, while others actually laughed at him. Those who had objected, they said, either you're going to come back soaked and defeated, or you'll drown and won't come back at all. That's what happens to people who think they know too much and discover too late that they don't. Well, uh, thankfully, uh, he did actually end up finding a way through and eventually brought the others, including the grumblers, through to the other side. But as Wright insightfully points out, this was very likely exactly or very much like what Jesus experienced as he pioneered the way through death and out the other side, which he knew was there, but which no one else understood. This is what I want to look at together in our time in this passage today as we round out what is going to be some of the last messages in our series through Matthew's Gospel entitled, Kingdom Come. For as difficult as it is to read these circumstances of what happened in Jesus' death, As Wright later reminds us, it's important to always keep in mind, Jesus' crucifixion, he says, was not a messy accident at the end of a glittering career. It was, in fact, the proper, though shocking, climax to it. But as we explore Jesus' pioneering path to the other side of death and back, while, I mean, there's actually a lot of different things we could spend time on here, uh, so much in this passage, what I want to focus on today in particular are just two things. Two things. I want to look at the way Matthew shows us how Jesus is also tempted in this moment to turn back from his pioneering path, just as Wright's friend was on this caving expedition. And I want to show how Jesus seems to hint at the fact that he knows his pioneering path truly does lead to the other side of death, even before he submerges under the water. That's what I want to look at together from our passage, these two things. We'll look at Jesus' last temptation and then Jesus' hopeful hinting. Just those two things, his last temptation and his hopeful hinting. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again to that passage? Follow along with me as we explore the pioneering path of Jesus through which he now leads all who put their faith in him safely to the other side of death okay so let's look first of all at jesus's last temptation his last temptation and i'm calling that his last temptation not simply because this is the last time jesus experiences temptation in his earthly ministry or even as some kind of a nod to the 1988 scorsese film the last temptation of christ but because of the way that this temptation jesus faces seems to bracket End of his earthly ministry in the same way that temptation seemed to be a part of his earthly ministry just as it began. Which, interestingly, if you look at the specific language being used in the second half of verse 40, look there, it's actually identical to the language that Satan uses in his temptation of Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Which, I mean, I can understand. Um, Back in Matthew 4, I I, kind of went back through the log here, and it was actually almost three years ago that we looked at it. So maybe it didn't leap to your mind. So just as a quick review, uh, just after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, he's led by the Spirit, we're told, out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. There again, Jesus is physically depleted as he experiences this temptation, although in this case, he's depleted because he's been fasting for 40 days out in the desert. But then, in each of the three temptations listed in Matthew 4, Satan's exact wording, each time he comes to Jesus, is, if you are the Son of God, do these things to prove it. Um, Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, Bow down and worship me. He gives him these three temptations that we have which are listed, which aside from being wickedly opportunistic, especially that first temptation to turn stones into bread, Jesus would have been desperately hungry. Aside from that, they were about calling Jesus' divine identity into question, causing him to maybe, if possible, doubt who he was and thus serve his own desires in that moment above the will of his Father in heaven. That was sort of the goal. But then recalling that now, how crazy is it here? As his earthly ministry is drawing to a close, Jesus is now tempted with the exact same words. If you are the Son of God, now come down from the cross. It kind of brackets both ends of his ministry. Which if you consider Jesus' present circumstances here as he's Strung up on the cross here, hands and feet pierced with nails, it's no less opportunistic a temptation. As Satan, as he comes to Jesus now in the form of these random passers-by, as well as the religious rulers, invites Jesus in the moment of his most unfathomable suffering, both physical and spiritual, to come down from the cross, prove once and for all who he is. Right? The chief priests, teachers of the law look there in verse 42, even say if you come down from the cross we'll put our faith in you too. We'll believe in you. Which, okay. I'm, I'm not sure how much we trust the word of these guys after everything they've pulled even just in the last 24 hours over Jesus. But still, you know what? This is me. I'm like, you know what? Then call their bluff. They've just stated publicly if you come down, we'll believe in you. Do it. Do it. And and, and force them to lie in the bed that they've made. And then Matthew doesn't tell us this. He only tells us, look at verse 44, that the two rebels crucified on either side of Jesus, they also hurled insults at him. But Luke's gospel tells us that at least one of these rebels calls out and says, aren't you the son of God? Save yourself and us. Which I mean, taken all together, this must have been powerfully tempting for Jesus in this moment to abandon the pioneer path that he's walking the last steps of and come down from the cross. I mean, think of it, like on top of just alleviating the intense physical suffering that he's enduring, in in one moment of serving himself before his purpose and calling, Jesus can reveal who he truly is. Like, who's going to doubt this if he actually comes down from the cross? He can save these guys calling out to him for mercy and maybe even finally shut these religious rulers up once and for all. Seems like a pretty good good trade-off, actually which isn't even to mention. And, and maybe this was the most powerfully tempting part of the call uh, of all. It's the fact that Jesus had already been so clearly and so obviously obedient to his Father's will, right? You, you can almost hear Satan's voice whispering in Jesus' ear through the midst of these, all these other voices calling out to him, just saying like, hey, hey, Jesus, Jesus, Look at me. You, you've done it, bro. You, you did it. I mean, wow. Like, three years ago, three years ago out in the desert, I didn't know if you had it in you to go all the way, but, I mean, look at you. Look at you. you you've done it. You haven't even just kind of, you know, allowed yourself to be arrested, let the soldiers smack you around a bit, look, just, you know, do it for the cameras. Like, you clearly obeyed your Father's will right? You, you, you look at you, your back torn open from being scourged, blood pouring down your head from that crown of thorns they jammed on it. Let them nail you, the Son of God, to, to a cross. And now look at you. You're, you're literally about to actually die. Like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't see this? You, you've, you've obeyed your Father. You've done it. Well done, Jesus. Jesus well done, now, now come on down from there before you, you take this further than this was ever supposed to go. That, that must have been just so incredibly powerfully tempting for him in this moment. And yet, what every single one of them missed, and, and really the most devastatingly painful irony of the whole thing is that it was precisely because the Son of God is who Jesus was that he couldn't come down from the cross. Because the Son of God is who Jesus was, he couldn't abandon his pioneering path. Coming down from the cross wouldn't have saved those rebels being crucified by Jesus. It was only by staying there that he could save them or anyone. And yeah, right? I mean, this this looked like the most colossal failure of all as Jesus is hanging there, right? And not only that, it must have looked like 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 the most awful reward for obedience to God's will. Here he's saying, I, I obey your will, I do what my Father says, and look at how it ends up. I love the way Frederick Buechner describes this utter hopelessness of the moment when he writes this. Whoever would recognize Jesus as a natural target for our faith, he was a man without form or comeliness, at the end just a rabbi with a split lip and a black eye the one for whom the ages had long, this Christ gets beaten up so badly and executed so derisively, he ends up looking less like a king and more like a joke. And king of kings, in three languages tacked over his head of this mangled man, assures that nobody will miss the joke. And if we're being completely honest... I wonder how many of us in here would confess that we have probably at least have some sense of the temptation that Jesus felt in this moment to abandon the pioneering path, too. We know what it feels like to feel tempted to abandon the purposes that we feel called to and serve ourselves in a moment because despite your faithfulness, okay, no, maybe not perfectly like Jesus, but the best you knew how, maybe you too have felt abandoned by God. Like strung up, sold out, left to rot without a friend around you. And like Jesus, you too have prayed, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, is, Is this my reward for obedience to you? Really? I know I have. And yet the greatest irony of all is that in this most terrible of moments for Jesus, as well as the thing that gives hope to remain steadfast in the face of temptation to abandon the path for you and me as well, is that what signs above his head accused him of, what soldiers mockingly uh, praised him as, and what saints and sinners passing by questioned, Jesus knew to be true in the depths of himself. He knew that he truly was the Son of God. He knew that he was not only just the King of the Jews, but the King of kings and Lord of lords, worthy of their worship that they offered mockingly to him. And because he knew who he was, remained steadfast in the face of this temptation, and as a result, opened up a path now for all who would come after him. He pioneered the path through because he remained faithful. In the wilderness, Jesus had responded to each of Satan's temptations with the words, it is written, He quoted some Old Testament scripture in order to kind of refute the temptation. Now here, Jesus is silent in the face of temptation, and he responds simply with his obedience. I mean, like, okay, I guess technically he's not completely silent. He does... He does speak that one thing in verse 46 when we hear his, his prayer to the Father known as the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But on the whole, Jesus, he's, he's silent in the face of temptation as well as like so many other voices talking all around him throughout. Which I guess, I mean, like from a literary standpoint, that kind of does make Make it stand out. If you think of the fact, like so many other people talking, saying all this stuff, Jesus is saying almost nothing, kind of makes like, the one thing he does say maybe even more significant. Okay. Uh, if you are sensing in this line of reasoning maybe a little bit of a thread, I would invite you, uh, as I did this past week, to, to pull on that thread because I think you might be onto something, which is what I want to look at lastly here as we talk about. Jesus' hopeful hint. And in truth, it really is only a hint that even those standing there missed. Right? Jesus, they hear Jesus cry out, Eli, Eli, and assume that Jesus is calling for Elijah. There there was a popular kind of well-known bit of folklore in Jesus' day among the Jews that if a truly innocent person called out to Elijah in their distress that he would come down and, and carry them away in his chariot, the same chariot that he'd been carried away of years ago, that, that, that was this idea. That's where they're getting all this, like, let's just wait and see if Elijah comes now in verses 37, or sorry, 47 to 49. That's, that's where they're getting that. But what we miss ourselves, even, unless you are a careful observer, is that tiny little footnote right after Jesus' prayer in verse 46. What we miss is that, no, although he doesn't preface the quote with the words, "'It is risen,' or it is written, Jesus is very much still quoting Scripture in refutation of this last temptation to come down from the cross, to abandon his pioneering path. And the Scripture Jesus is quoting is verse 1 of Psalm 22, which reads, surprise, surprise, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's quoting it exactly. Now, if you're a detective trying to solve a case, if you are a uh, handing in your evidence to the forensics lab to figure out what's the connection here. If you see a a piece of evidence like this, this is the kind of thing that blows cases open, right? You find that detail, and it's like, okay, so this makes things start to make sense now. I think that's exactly what we have here. But just quickly, something I want to say just before we take a few minutes to look at all that this hopeful hint from Jesus reveals, what I want to be very careful to say is this. That whatever else this hint points to, both about who Jesus is, as well as the hope that he holds that this pioneering path truly will lead to the other side of death and back, does not mean that Jesus was not also truly forsaken by the Father. I think we need to say that as well. He's not like he's quoting scripture, but he is also asking, why have you forsaken me? Now, how does that work? We, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery to us. It's something that we can't fully grasp in our human finite understanding, how Jesus can remain fully God, the second person of the Trinity throughout, and also be forsaken by God at the same time. We don't know. We don't know. Don't come after me after the service or email me this week. But how could Jesus? I'm going to answer you the same way. We don't know. We'll find out one day. What we do know is that the Bible affirms both are true, that that ontologically speaking, in the nature of his essence and being, Jesus is fully God and therefore can't stop being God, and that Jesus has to be truly forsaken by God or he hasn't truly borne the penalty for our sins, which is separation from God. Bible affirms both, but I just needed to say that before jumping to Psalm 22, where it would be easy to see Jesus, quote, as like a signpost pointing to something else and not also a divine reality that he's experiencing in the moment. It's both. Okay, but understanding that now, we can kind of follow the breadcrumbs, if you will, to Psalm 22 and, and, and see what it is that Jesus is talking about here. Because as I understand it, by quoting just that one verse, he wants us to go there and, and read the rest of what's going on. right? He's not just quoting that so they could say, oh, that sounds familiar, I've, oh, I've heard that. He, he's saying, go there and, and read what else you're going to see. So let's do this. We're going to follow the breadcrumbs to Psalm 22 and read a bit more. So listen to this, and and think about it in, in light of everything that we read in Matthew's gospel. This is crazy. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Listen to this. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots from my garment. Okay. What? <laughs> what? How... how- how is that even possible? It's literally like David is writing a POV from the cross and describing all the things that are happening real time in Matthew's gospel. How is that even possible? And it's confusing, right? We, we wonder how he's doing this because if you've, it, it's not just that the two accounts are so identical, like that's creepily. The same, And yet, if you read the Psalms before, you know that most of them are written from the psalmist's firsthand experience, something that happened to him, good or bad, and he's describing it and describing it in these prayers. And so we see Psalm 22. This is a Psalm of David. And so we read that. We're like, okay, I'm flipping through First and Second Samuel, flipping through flipping the through Chronicles like, and saying, okay, when did this ever happen to David? When were his hands and feet pierced? When uh, did people cast lots for David's garments? Okay, you don't need to look there. The short answer is it didn't. That, that, that never happened. So what's going on? Well, I think what it means is that what David is doing in Psalm 22 is he's stepping outside of the role of a psalmist, reflecting on what God has done and into the role of a prophet describing something that God will do at some point in the future. This is one of the rare things about Psalm 22. It's not describing his experience. It's prophetically pointing forward to something that will happen. But here's the thing. Understanding that now, that this is what David is doing, he's operating in a prophetic role, listen to what he goes on to write in the remainder of the psalm. Start in verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry. For help from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Therefore, those who fear you, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. What we need to see is that Jesus has all of this in his mind as well when he's referring to Psalm 22. Not just those connection pieces, but the rest of it too. Right. Which means, to use the language of the illustration that we started with, Jesus sees the way through to the other side of death and back long before his head submerges under the water and he gives up his spirit. His spirit, He, he sees all of this and knows that this is the fullness of what's going on. But do you see it? Unlike Wright's cave-exploring friend, Jesus is not investigating a theory. He's not testing out a hypothesis or exploring a potential way through the curtain of death that has kept mankind separated from a holy God ever since the Garden of Eden. Jesus is, like we said last week, he's keeping the promise that was made in the Garden the very moment we lost relationship with God. Crushing the head of the serpent in his death by giving his life as a debt-canceling, wrath-averting sacrifice on our behalf so that from this day forward, as Jesus tells Martha in John 11 at the death of her brother, whoever believes in me even though he die, yet shall he live. He's, he's pioneered the way through death and out the other side. And on top of that, as we see in the tearing of the temple curtain, this, this boundary that up until now had signified a complete inability of sinful mankind to be in the presence of a holy God. When that temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, we see that not only does Jesus' death remove the penalty for our sins, but the sin that separates us from a holy God itself. The thing that, that, that kept us separated from God, canceling the debt of all of our promise-breaking and crediting His perfect promise-keeping to us. Which means He's also pioneered the path into God's presence for us. That's the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body. Jesus had all of this in mind as he hung there from the cross. And I believe then reveals it to us in refuting this last temptation by quoting Psalm 22. It's what he wants to point us to. Which, no, like doesn't for a minute mean that, that all the devastation that Jesus has to endure in the moment in order to keep that promise isn't real. That that's not happening too. No, Jesus is in utter agony at this moment physically, and and I think in particular spiritually, as he bears a weight that none of us could even fathom, as the sinless Son of God takes the wrath against the sins of the entire world upon himself. And yet I think it's the knowledge of this that is both who he is as well as all his death is accomplishing. I think this is absolutely, undoubtedly, what Hebrews calls the joy set before him. This is, with this knowledge, this is what enabled him to endure the cross and despise its shame. But what Hebrews also says, and we'll look at this in closing, is that in fixing our eyes on Jesus, who Hebrews calls the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, we're enabled to run the race that's marked out for us, now, with the same perseverance, ourselves. Which means maybe, maybe the hint Jesus dropped in refuting this last temptation that he experienced by quoting Psalm 22 wasn't only about revealing what he knew about himself as he followed this pioneering path, but something that he wanted us to know about it as well. Whenever following him seems like an equally catastrophic failure. Whenever we feel abandoned by God ourselves, I think there's something he wanted us to know by quoting this psalm as well. Because isn't that what we said earlier? All of us, I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think all of us either have had or will have some experience in life that's going to feel like it's gone completely off the rails and God is nowhere to be seen. I think most of us can recall a moment like that. Moments when, like David, we see David describing in Psalm 73 when we look around at the apparent ease and prosperity of everyone around us who doesn't care at all about God, and we we cry out to God, like, "In, in vain I've kept my heart pure, washed my hands in innocence in vain. And like Jesus, the temptation in that moment is to abandon the path and turn back to what feels safe, what feels familiar, numbing, controlling, Escaping, hiding. But maybe what Jesus is ultimately revealing to us in Psalm 22 is this, that he's already walked the path of God-forsakenness for us. He's saying, I've already walked that path for you, so none of us will ever have to walk it again. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Jesus says there's going to be times, absolutely days, where you'll still feel forsaken by God. Times when it feels like the reward for obedience is only suffering and misery, and yet you aren't, and it isn't. Why? Because as Keller so masterfully puts it, Jesus is the only person in human history who's ever been told by God, you're going to be completely, perfectly obedient to me, and the reward for that is that I'm going to forsake you. Jesus is the only person in history who's ever been told that. And yet because he was told that, and because he experienced God-forsakenness as the reward for his obedience on our behalf, he can now assure everyone who puts their faith and their trust in his saving work on the cross that they will never truly experience that themselves. It will feel like it, but you'll never truly be forsaken by God ever. I think that's what Jesus was also revealing, both in quoting Psalm 22 as well as in the tearing of the temple curtain in two as well. I think in all this, Jesus is saying the way to God is now open, is open again. I've pioneered the path for you. And By fixing your eyes and your faith and your trust on me, you're going to be enabled now to run the race marked out for you with perseverance until that race is complete, and I lead you safely through to the other side of death to enjoy my heavenly reward for all time. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, as Hebrews also writes, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. He's made the way. He's pioneered the path for us. May we take it today. Amen.